Al Jazeera podcast. Will Vladimir Putin legitimize the Wagner Group? The Russian president has ordered a former commander of the mercenary force to take charge of volunteer units in Ukraine. So, how could Putin profit from Wagner fighters? And could they be integrated into the army? I'm Mohammed Imjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, let's go ahead and bring in our guests. Joining me from Moscow is Pavel Felgenhauer, an independent Russian defense analyst. In London is Michael Clark, visiting professor at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. And in Washington, D.C. is John Lechner, an independent researcher with a special focus on conflict in Africa and the author of a forthcoming book on the Wagner Group. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Pavel, let me start with you today. What message is President Putin sending to the world by appearing on television with Andrei Troshev? Is this, from your vantage point, a clear sign that the Kremlin will be exerting more control over the group? Well, the Kremlin uh, and President Putin aspire to control the group, or not the group, but what's left of it, because they clearly need the fighters of Wagner. Uh, They're needed primarily on the uh, Ukrainian front line, but also uh, their operations in uh, Middle East and Africa, too. Uh, So, yes, uh, that's what basically Putin was doing from the the entire kind of crisis of the Wagner crisis. I mean, after uh, they retreated from Moscow, there was a meeting in the Kremlin between Putin and the Wagner group uh, leadership. And then he was also pressing the same thing, that what he did was bad, what your leadership did was bad, that was uh, a bad thing. Uh, But you're good guys, you should kind of go and fight for Mother Russia. Uh, so, yes, that's what they want. They want uh, Wagner, but without its leadership. Now there is no leadership left. It is all wiped out in this plane crash uh, last month. And so now they want to encourage the Wagner fighters and the Wagner lucrative operations in Africa and the Middle East. Mm. Uh, and, Pavel, uh, how easy or difficult will it be to fold the Wagner Group into the Russian military? Um, a lot of Wagner fighters had, had left the Russian army in the past, and it doesn't seem that they would be too enthusiastic about the idea of being under the auspices of the defense ministry. Um, would they actually want to fight alongside Russian forces going forward? Oh, some did sign contracts, but their hierarchy, their kind of the... Uh, uh, a cadre of the Wagner Group, and it's a kind of loose organization. I mean, it's like a, uh, it can expand easily. They have a big book of former veterans, which they, as, as they know, are good specialists. They can call them up when there's uh, money to be paid and a mission to be accomplished. And there's the kind of about a thousand, over a thousand, these are the command structure people, and they are also practically all of them are former military personnel Mm. up to rank of colonel, and they left the military specifically because they didn't like how the generals were running the Russian military. So they are kind of armed dissidents, and up to now, their vast majority has been refusing to sign contracts with the defense ministry. So part of it's kind of, it's like a substitute 
if, if you don't want to deal directly with the defense ministry, mm. here's a closer, if you know him, he's one of your own, and you can kind of deal through him. John, after the aborted mutiny in June, uh, many thought that the Wagner Group would be folded into the Russian Ministry of Defense based on President Putin's remarks while meeting with Andrei Troshev. Is that process now underway? Is that what you think that we are seeing? Yeah, I, I agree with Pavel. I think that we, we are seeing that, that process, which is certainly taking some time. I think it's difficult right now to talk about uh, exactly what that is going to look like because I think as as Pavel had said before, Wagner, we, we can think of it much more as a contracting organization. It, it has far fewer permanent employees than it has, as Pavel mentioned, these lists of, of contacts of, of uh, men with military experience who they can recruit for specific, missions. And when the contract is over, say a two-year contract, a one-year contract, th those uh, fighters can go on to another organization. It used to be in the past that, that it was difficult for them to go to another PMC and then come back to Wagner because Wagner was kind of a, a jealous organization and they could be blacklisted. But essentially, they were free agents afterwards. And so I think uh, when, when, we're, when we're thinking about control, what we have to look at is sort of the permanent staff. And, and as far as we've seen so far in Africa uh, and in Syria, the, the same faces have largely stuck around, which, which implies that they're continuing to work uh, mm. and that they will likely fall under whatever this new structure will be. John, let me just check with you. When you say PMC, you're talking about private military companies, right? That's correct, yes. All right. Um, John, let me also ask you about the fact that uh, President Putin ordered Andrei Troshev to take charge of volunteer units in Ukraine. Um, how long do you think that process might take? I mean, what kind of timeline are we looking at? And, and how much impact might that have on the ground in Ukraine? Not sure exactly uh, on the timeline. That that's probably difficult to to tell, and, and I think it will very much depend on individuals who want to go back to go back to the front. I'm sure that there are a decent amount of of Wagner fighters who who do believe, obviously, in the in the war in Ukraine and do want to return. There's also a number of fighters who, probably having experienced Bakhmut, would prefer to be in uh, safer conflicts in, in Africa as well and, and avoid Ukraine. But I think ultimately we have to remember that uh, at least since uh, since the mutiny and, and, and since about May 10th when, when Prigozhin declared victory in Bakhmut and handed uh, the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine over to the Ministry of Defense, Wagner has not been uh, on the front. Uh, it has not been participating in the war in Ukraine. And so all the developments that we've seen most recently with Ukraine's counteroffensive and the Russians doing a relatively effective job of holding that at bay has come without the participation of Wagner. And so, mm. well, I think that uh, certainly Wagner represents a high degree of military talent, especially with a number of uh, their commanders. Mm. I'm hesitant to say that their re-entrance uh, into the conflict will be a make or break for either Ukraine or Russia. Michael, how much pressure is President Putin under to strengthen Russia's offensive in Ukraine? Uh, quite a lot. Uh, the Russian forces are stretched at the moment. They're holding their positions. 
but only just because they've got no operational reserves. So they're having to take uh, forces from one area of the front to put them to another. So uh, five regiments of the VDV, the Airborne, from the 7th and the 76th Divisions have already been transferred to the Odakiv Front, which is the main battlefront at the moment, and the whole of the 42nd Mechanised Infantry uh, are down there as well, Brigade, uh, doing a lot more fighting. So the Russians haven't got a, a mobile reserve. They are relatively short of troops, and President Putin is hanging on for the winter. He's hanging on for the bad weather, trying not to lose very much territory. And then when the weather turns bad in about four to six weeks, then he hopes he, could, he can recalibrate his uh, strategy after that. Michael, um, let me also ask you about the fact that, you know, for a long time, uh, the narrative uh, that seemed to be emerging from the Kremlin was that Russia's government really had nothing to do with Wagner. So is what we're seeing now an about face? And if so, does this surprise you? No, uh, not at all. I mean, we all knew that Putin was lying completely when he said he, he claimed not to know anything about Wagner. He claimed that they had no no um, relationship to the Kremlin. Then he's then he made it clear. I mean, and this was a, a group that used to go to the Kremlin to receive medals, even when he knew nothing about it. Apparently, uh, and then um, in the teeth of the coup after the twenty fourth of of June, he he was so angry, he made it clear how much they paid Wagner and all these contracts that Wagner had. And now he's not even trying to pretend that uh, Wagner isn't formally part of the whole war machine. That's not to say that the Kremlin has control over Wagner. Clearly, it didn't have. But it was it was a, an instrument that was created in 2013, 2014, that he found useful to use, and he's used it ever since. So it's not no surprise whatsoever that he's saying what he now says. I mean, you know, nobody believed him then. And, and we I mean, he may now be telling the truth, but there's no guarantee of that either. Pavel, let me ask you a version of the question I just asked Michael. Um, for a long time, uh, the Kremlin referred to the mercenaries as a private force. Uh, they had denied direct responsibility for Wagner's actions. Uh, this is just no longer the case, right? Oh, yes, that's losing plausible deniability because Russian officials and President Putin personally when there's something going wrong, wasn't say in Libya or somewhere else, say, I don't know these people, these people are independent, they go where they wish. And now we can't say that if they're under the auspices of the Russian Defense Ministry, and he apparently personally is involved in uh, 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 micromanaging the command structure of Wagner, or former Wagner, or derivate Wagner group, I mean, he can't say that I don't can't don't control them anymore. Uh, so yes, that's well, that that uh, excuse has been decisively lost. And Pavel, um, earlier John was talking about the fact that uh, Wagner doesn't seem to be participating in any frontline battles at this stage uh, in Ukraine. I want to ask you about that. How much of a battlefield role have Wagner fighters had in Ukraine since Bakhmut was recaptured by them? Um, have any Wagner mercenaries redeployed to the front line in eastern Ukraine and joined the Russian military there? Uh, well, they played a decisive role in the bloodbath of uh, Bakhmut, and before that, they are uh, very vicious battlefield fighters, well uh, trained and apparently well motivated. And after the bloodbath of Bakhmut, they were withdrawn for uh, recuperation, and then there were some different kind of conflicts between uh, Prigozhin and the top brass of the Russian uh, military. So 
As a group, they are not at the front, but apparently quite a number of uh, individual fighters who did actually sign contracts with the defense ministry uh, after Wagner was withdrawn have been apparently reported to being on the front line, but there we're talking about maybe uh, several hundred, not that much. John, in the short term, does this move benefit President Putin? Uh, does it ultimately put him in a stronger position? Uh, it, I think it does in terms of the overall narrative, which the Kremlin is trying to put forward, that Wagner is back under uh, the, the control of the Russian government. It's now under the control of the Ministry of Defense. But I think we have to remember, you know, what, what do we mean by control in, in the first place? Um, at the end of the day, the way the Putin system has historically functioned is that there is often very little guidance from the center, from Putin himself. And this gives quite a lot of freedom for powerful individuals and oligarchic interests to go out and pursue profit-making activities, framing it as foreign policy. And as long as they can kind of frame it within Russia's national interest and the greater narrative of Russia as a great power, it, there's really no contradiction in terms of uh, them also making money uh, out of the venture as well. And so I think what, what we're seeing right now is, is an effort to to recreate the narrative that, that Wagner is under the control by putting a few people uh, kind of in, in top positions and, and in place. But that doesn't necessarily mean that on the ground in the Central African Republic, on the ground in Mali, this uh, sort of centralized but decentralized structure uh, will, will kind of continue to run, not necessarily with the MOD knowing everything that's going on. Michael, we've spoken a lot already in this episode about Wagner's role in Ukraine. But in addition to Ukraine, Wagner fighters have also been active in several African countries, assisting governments with counterinsurgency operations. Is this something that's going to continue? Yes, and they'll develop it. They've, they've created a sort of model for this. So Wagner has been involved in uh, Libya, uh, supporting General Haftar, who's a, a part of the breakaway uh, alternative government in Libya based in um, Benghazi. They've been doing that for a long time in the Central African Republic. Um, they're now very much involved in Mali, essentially the, the, the coup in Mali, through the Western powers out, through the French out, and brought in Wagner. Uh, Niger is doing the same, throwing the West out, throwing French out, um, but they haven't yet let in Wagner fighters, it seems. There, there have been some clashes, apparently, on the border between some Al-Qaeda fighters and Wagner fighters. Not sure how serious that is. But what Wagner have done is created this uh, business model, really, whereby they'll sign up with any dictator and they'll do the dirty work, whatever it is. Even if it's genocide, that's fine. They don't really mind about that. They'll do any amount of dirty work in return for a share of the national wealth. And that usually means mining concessions or sharing the, say, the gold mines, uh, the gold mining in uh, uh, somewhere like uh, uh, Mali, and uh, there's a lot of gold in Niger, uh, be uh, minerals, um, and in some cases, oil as well, in the case of, of Libya. And that's a business model which has been expanding. So there are Wagner people who run breweries, uh, they run insurance companies, travel companies. It's, it's not just a military organisation, it is actually a, a conglomerate which can franchise itself and it's an arm of, of Russian influence, uh, although the Russian government hasn't taken that much advantage of it so far, I think the expectation is that it will in the future. John, I saw you uh, reacting to some of what Michael was saying. They looked like you wanted to jump in. Go ahead. 
No, I, I mean, I think I think I think Michael is right on point that we're going to continue to see uh, Wagner operate in Africa because, as he said, Wagner has created a product that's created a, a market for for its services. Um, and even I think if uh, Wagner were to suddenly disappear from Africa, we would likely see uh, you know other countries with these kind of public-private partnerships try to try to step in and, and fill the void. I think. It, it, it's important to note that uh, Wagner is coming about at a very uh, interesting time now in Africa in general, where we've seen uh, some very kind of real uh, anti-French sentiment, real kind of uh, interest in Africa's youth for uh, a further round of decolonization, which has come at the expense of, of France's relationships with many of its former colonies. But at the same time, African governments also don't have an alternative security partner to uh, Western interventions or or United Nations peacekeeping missions, if for whatever reason they they choose that they they don't want those to be there. And so Wagner ha has benefited as well from this structure as essentially the only alternative security partner, uh, no matter how brutal they might be. Uh, for African governments and uh, Wagner also, uh, Michael had mentioned that. You know, they're a tool of Russian influence. I would go a bit further and say that you know, in Africa, Russia's uh, the Russian government's historical presence, at least since the the Cold War, has been mm. relatively minimal. And this gave Prigozhin a lot of leash to essentially go out there and create what he thought Russia's interests in Africa should be. Pavel, uh, what about you? What do you say? Uh, do you foresee that uh, Wagner's footprint in Africa is going to expand going forward? Uh, sorry to pour some cold water on that, but I believe that the uh, Wagner operation in Africa is, uh, is in deep trouble, if not totally doomed. Because uh, Wagner has been decapitated. There is no more Wagner. And if they lost, yes, their uh, top military commander, Dmitry Utkin, in the plane crash, but their military structure is more or less intact. At least it's uh, so the fighters are there. The commanders are there. Their uh, financial economics have been really wiped out. There's no Prigozhin. There's no uh, Mr. Chernikov, who's also died in that crash, was the main logistics and financial operator. So how that's going to work? I mean, Wagner was lean and mean. They operated like uh, organized crime uh, syndicate or uh, 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 like, I mean, a uh, 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 um, a Mexican drug cartel, I mean. Everything was paid in cash, on time. Everyone knew, every fighter knew that he'll get his money or his family will get his compensation without any bureaucracy, without any papers, just uh, bags of cash. And in uh, this cash, there was uh, 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 concessions on uh, gold and di diamonds and so on. And that was transferred by Prigozhin into cash and also cash from the Kremlin, all put together, all worked. And now it's the defense ministry, which is, uh, and the Russian defense ministry is not a, a, a criminal syndicate. It's all total bureaucracy, over 2 million uh, employees. There's corruption there, sure. And that means the fighters that are still in Africa will soon figure that they're not getting their money in time or in full, they're getting it through the defense ministry that goes only through um, bank uh, wires. 
to Russian uh, cards or Russian banks, and there's mm. been so much complaint in Ukraine that the money is not coming in time. So I don't see how this um, Wagner economic model can be workable under the Russian uh, state bureaucracy. Mm. I, I think it's going to all begin to disintegrate and rather soon. John, if we could just take a step back for a moment, I want to ask you about how important Africa is both economically and politically uh, to Russia and whether or not Russia actually tries to expand the Wagner footprint uh, in Africa. Will the Kremlin face challenges in keeping a strong presence in Africa? No, I think so. I mean, I think, as I was saying earlier, Wagner has has been able to create what Russia's interests in Africa were because Russia's interests in Africa uh, at the time, we're certainly not that great. Uh, it, it's not an important trade partner for for Russia. Uh, it, it, it doesn't factor significantly into Russia's uh, national security interests. It's never mentioned in Russian military doctrine uh, or or kind of political aspirations. And so, I think uh, since the invasion, uh, the full scale invasion of, of Ukraine last year. I think that the narrative, the geopolitical narrative of Russia as a partner for Africa has become more important, uh, essentially to show that Russia is not uh, geopolitically isolated, to show people at home, to show to show uh, on the international stage that, that uh, there are still many countries that want to do business with Russia. I, I disagree. Uh, well, I guess my I disagree slightly with uh, Pavel, I, I agree that the Ministry of Defense won't be able to take over um, and absorb all of Wagner's economic uh, operations, which is why I'm, I'm skeptical that the Ministry of Defense is necessarily going to try and, and, and take over all of these operations. Mm. There is still, Prigozhin was undoubtedly a, a, a charismatic figure who, who, who whose ideas were, were always kind of keeping this organization together. But there were still a lot of operators at the level right mm. below him who know how it worked. And he, he's essentially created these companies that are going concerns. And, and I think if, if we even take the, the analogy of you know, a Mexican cartel uh, or, or, or something else along those lines, mm. usually with cartels as well, that if the, the head is taken out, uh, the, the cartel still morphs and then kind of continues to, to go on in a different form. And so... I think we have to be specific as well that perhaps what what we're going to see in the future is not something that is exactly Wagner as 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 we've seen uh, as we see it today. But Wagner has gone through multiple multiple iterations mm. uh, in its short history, and so the the same issues of supply and demand, the fact that there's a lot of supply mm. of Russian mercenaries, there's a demand. And there's still a lot of creative entre entrepreneurial people within the organization mm -hmm. and with, within Russia itself, I think points to the fact that a version of this will continue for quite some time. Michael, uh, we only have a couple of minutes left, uh, but let me ask you, um, would President Putin have considered disbanding the Wagner Group? I, I ask that because I'm curious to get your thoughts on if that would have been a very risky move for him, just essentially having all those fighters uh, on the loose and not within that group anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, he was always faced with a problem after the uh, attempted coup or whatever it was in, in June. I mean, it's clear that the Wagner people were not going to go into the ordinary military. They, For all sorts of reasons, they wouldn't. It was most likely they'd either drift into other PMCs, and there are plenty of them around. There's 15 or 20 of them in Ukraine itself, PMCs run by different R Russian figures, including Shogu, the defence minister. He's got his own. Chimchenko runs Ridut, which is quite like Wagner. So they were always going to drift into other groups or keep them together in one idea, keep them in Belarus, where they train the Belarusian army and use that as a base for further mm. operations. That idea has sort of faded a little bit. But they were always they're always a dangerous force for Putin. They only used to be five or 10,000, but now there seems to be about 40,000 of them. About mm. 100,000 people have cycled through Wagner. So it's a pretty, it is actually a, a consequential group. Mm. And it's probably safer for him to try to keep it together with a, with a different role rather than just let it dissolve and become a problem elsewhere. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Pablo Felgenhauer, Michael Clark, and John Lechner. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Fenton Monahan, Abla and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Fadzel Yahya. The program was edited by Alexander Otashevich, Zaina Badr, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Sunday for our next episode. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.